So you should have an outline that says uh, eight essential elements of the biblical Christian gospel series, element 7K. Uh, sorry, Emily. <laughs> Emily hates when I do the 7A, 7B, <laughs> so forth. It's a good thing I don't take her Latin class because I would have been kicked out by now. Uh, <laughs> um, and this, it would do you no good to do any parent-teacher conferences at this point. <laughs> so um, the pattern of the five first steps in, when entering into Christ's kingdom, we are doing a whole series on each of step three, step four, and step five. Step three being a second encounter uh, with the Holy Spirit, sometimes referred to seven times the phrase baptized in the Holy Spirit is used in the verb form in the New Testament. Uh, receiving the promise of the Father, the phrase the promise is about 20 times in the New Testament. Being filled with the Spirit, have, you know, so forth. Some people, uh, Dennis Bennett, like to look at it as a greater release of the Holy Spirit. We're going to see, look into... Uh, the model of Christ in his pattern and see that even Christ had a second encounter with the Holy Spirit and then a process to be fully in, uh, operating in the things of the Spirit. So how much more so us? Um, so you're, uh, you know, so we're re running uh, another series at the same time, which is the Baptizing the Holy Spirit series. Some of you may realize we've had a couple series over the years. One was just a four-part series from around 2014. Deanna, was that 12? What I don't remember. That's on the that's on the uh, website under messages on baptism. But then now we've created a whole special category just for this 2017 version of the baptizing the Holy Spirit series. Uh, I had done a summer version, but I, that was never recorded or put on the podcast. Well, it was recorded, but it's never put on the podcast that we looked into all kind of things about the Holy Spirit. So in terms of the, uh, of the Baptizing the Holy Spirit series, this is chapter nine, nine and we're looking today, uh, we're actually kind of going into section B today. So section A, the first... Uh, Eight messages of the Holy Spirit series are really focusing on the question, why do we need a greater knowledge of and a greater encounter with the person and ministry of the Holy Spirit? Why, does, why do we need that individually? Why does the church of our day need that? Why does Grace Christian Fellowship need that? Uh, and so forth. So uh, now we're kind of turning the corner and we're going to start looking at the biblical pattern so we're going to spend uh, three weeks to four weeks on that. And uh, first today, we're just going to look at the importance of patterns. This will not be new ground for some of you at, at all, uh, although I tried to throw in a few new verses and so forth, make it a little interesting to those of you who've basically heard this message three to five times over the years. Uh, this, this message... Um, is on our website under a, a category called uh, the Rediscovering and Restoring Biblical Christianity series. And I was told by Jennifer Pett uh, just two weeks ago that that was the best message of all. So, and she's firing. And I don't know about the delivery because I, I never like my delivery, but in terms of what's the important information, it's a very important uh, concept for us. 
So Roman numeral one, those are the eight titles of the eight essential elements. In the lighter gray print in italics to the right is, a pro is when they were posted. If anyone wants to go back and listen to this long series, because this is the 94th lesson uh, in it. Uh, recently, we've been looking at element seven of the eight elements, which is we call the first five steps of entering Christ's kingdom. And we're focusing on step three, baptizing the Holy Spirit. Step four, deliverance and healing. That's going to be an entire mini-series itself for about 15 weeks coming up. And then step five, entering a New Testament way of life, which has two directions to it. Our, uh, you might call it the uh, vertical direction of our individual, sometimes alone and private is very important, spiritual disciplines. But, but then the horizontal dimension of our corporate way of life in church, community, discipleship, all that kind of stuff. So um, we'll do a little mini-series on that as well. And then uh, we will finally move on to number eight, maturing in Christ, and look mostly at the means of grace or what we call the delivery systems or tools of grace. So recently, again, we've been on this Baptized in the Spirit series running coterminously with the Eight Essential Series. Uh, two and three messages ago, we started looking at uh, the activities of the Holy Spirit. If you remember, we started with uh, eight metaphors. Chapter one was uh, eight word pictures of the Holy Spirit in the Bible. Uh, chapter two was the attributes of the Holy Spirit, and we especially focused on his deity and, and so forth. Um, chapter three was the ministry of the Holy Spirit, more, what does the Holy Spirit do from a theological perspective on behalf of the Father and the Son? And, uh, of course, that works itself out. The mouth speaks out of the abundance that fills the heart. The ministry of the Holy Spirit gives direction to the activities of what the Holy Spirit does. And uh, God always acts in uh, congruent with his nature. So do you. Uh, your outward acts are always a reflection of your inward being. The, the mouth speaks out of the abundance and fills the heart. And all of our actions come out of, the, of who we are. So like God is the same. Uh, so when we talked about the activities of the Holy Spirit, three weeks ago we looked at the activities of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. Or no, I'm sorry, three messages ago, two Sundays ago. We looked at the activities of the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. We took three things away from that, uh, which I'm not sure if I, I don't think I repeated in here. But we want to... I want you to note that all seven of the nine gifts of the Holy Spirit is listed in 1 Corinthians 12, 4 through 11, uh, were, were uh, occurred through various people in the, uh, all through the Old Testament. So the only things unique to the New Testament manifestations of the Spirit are speaking in tongues and interpretation of tongues. Um. We also noted that they were primarily distributed mostly among priests, judges, prophets, and kings. And those four ministries kind of developed in that order for the most part, although there are people like Abraham, who's arguably at least three or all four of those ministries, of course. But uh, um, and that, and the, the, the gifts of the Holy Spirit uh, and the activities of the Holy Spirit 
were not as uh, manifest among all of God's people. So one of the unique things to the New Testament is that all God's people are supposed to be empowered by the Holy Spirit, move in activities of the Holy Spirit, be instruments of his gifts and his miraculous manifestations, and so forth. Uh, it's time for the church to stop being a nonprofit organization. Not a little joke. Uh, no extra charge. Um, so then uh, we looked at the activities of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament. The main takeaway I want us to think about there is not just for... Uh, Overcoming the arguments of what we're going to look at next Sunday is the three uh, current. Pers- oh, no, I'm just. I'm sorry. We're going to look at this Tuesday night because uh, we've started a Tuesday night meeting. We've moved the Tuesday night Bible study from Wright State here, and we've started that at seven. And uh, we added worship to that. And uh, I do want to kind of just say that uh, even though it was sparsely attended. Uh, it was just, it was one of the most amazing times of worship we've ever had as a church. It was incredible, right? Um, getting a few smiles from people who were there. That uh, It was just overwhelming, this presence of God. And, you know, it's hard to know why God does that sometimes, but uh, I always like to speculate and seek the Lord about it. But I, I do think that one very real possibility is that God is just uh, kind of confirming direction sometimes, and those who are led by the Spirit of God are the sons of God. And we want to, of course, uh, you know, I, I remember asking one of the kind of nationally known guys that that helped me grow a lot when I was, uh, you know, he's the kind of guy I listened to hundreds of his, back in those days, cassette tapes and read his books and, got, you know, we had him into Bowling Green to speak from time to time, and so I got to have dinner with him a few times, and Somebody asked a question around the dinner table once, what is it we're trying to do? And he said, you know, we're trying to do what God will bless. And, uh, you know, that's kind of, that's, that's a great uh, way of summing up what we're trying to do here at Grace Christian Fellowship. We are willing to, to re-examine things biblically. We are willing to assume we don't know what we think, everything, keep studying, keep trying to uncover things, and and change how we're going about things, why we're going about things, the attitudes, the motivations, the meetings, the models, the wineskins, etc. Whatever it takes to continue to see God's presence gradually grow, develop, and be more manifest and, and redemptive in our midst. And we don't want uh, just a few superstars experiencing that, as happens in some charismatic circles and so forth, but we want everyone to experience that together and participate that. And that's, you know, that's one of the things we're, we're really trying to do here. Um, so then we looked uh, at the, the activities of the Holy Spirit in the New Testament. There's a little summary on the first page there. The main thing I want to stress is the New Testament is enacted on better promises and it has better provisions. Why should we expect less? I'm going to take a few minutes to get over being a little shaky because I forgot to eat breakfast again this morning. Um, which, when I drink too much coffee and don't eat breakfast, I get just a little shaky. Um, not a little shady, I'm usually that. But uh, <laughs> um, anyway, so um, 
the main, you know, again, that main expectation is this. Why should we expect less manifestation of the Holy Spirit in our Christian life than what the people in the Old Testament experienced if we're in a better covenant? And in a lot of ways, when you look at the ministry of Jesus, we, we made four points. So I've left two on in the summary here. We made four points about the ministry of Jesus in, in regards to the Holy Spirit, which I've left two of them in the summary here in the re- recap. But in a lot of ways, what Jesus was actually doing is he was transitional between the Old Testament uh, activities of the Holy Spirit and the New Testament activities of the Holy Spirit. He clearly is saying over and over again that he is our model. He is our pattern. Next Sunday's message, I I got my, which ones are which, confused, but next Sunday's message is going to be on Jesus and the different stages of the Holy Spirit's activity in his life. And because that is really, you know, for anyone who is opposed to like second experience theologies and so forth, uh, Jesus clearly had that. And he is clearly the model for everything in the Christian life. He's the model for the church. He's the model of what grace is. He's the model. Any subject you want to bring up, we have to start with looking at the model in, in, in the person and ministry of Jesus. So that'll be next Sunday's. Um. This past Tuesday, uh, we did the third part of the activities of the Holy Spirit. So that was chapter 4, chapter 5, and then Tuesday we did chapter 6. And we looked at the activities of the Holy Spirit after the close of the New Testament. That is, after the New Testament books were written. Because, of course, one of the uh, this Tuesday we're going to look at the three modern perspectives on the Holy Spirit And we're going to see that one is that the Holy Spirit only did certain things in the ministry of Jesus and the apostles, then he stopped doing those things, and that's called cessationism. And so we looked this past Tuesday at why that is not historically defensible. We're going to actually look at a week from this Tuesday why it's not biblically defensible. And uh, both of them are complete open and shut cases. And if you don't think that historical proof is as important as the biblical proof, then we're probably not understanding the nature of our faith. The nature of our faith is the only faith that is rooted both Old Covenant and New Covenant. The Old Covenant starts with 17 historically accurate, inerrant, infallible books that recount the history correctly. And the New Testament starts with five historical books. And it wasn't an accident that, that when they're putting together the canon that they put the, the four gospel accounts first, followed by the book of Acts and the account of the New Testament church. Because our faith is rooted in the activities of God historically. There are a lot of great world religions that have a great figure like a Buddha or a Muhammad. Um, And there's all kind of questions about their character, about their, uh, their, you know, their things contradicting one another. Like in Islam, if you study uh, the ways to interpret the Quran, one of the principles is that when the Quran contradicts itself, which it often does, that whatever Muhammad said later is to be preferred over what he said earlier. 
and even Islamic scholars would, would admit to that. That's how they go about it. So um, we're going to look at, uh, at, at the biblical arguments, but the historical arguments that we covered Tuesday, un unfortunately, I, I saw the podcast was already on the website. Thank you. I was actually thinking about not putting it on there because it's way too long. It's over 90 minutes, and it has way too many things that I probably shouldn't have gotten into. So if you don't want to listen to it, that's okay. There's a book I have listed here uh, called Miracles and Manifestations of the Holy Spirit in the History of the Church, edited by Jeff Doles. We have a few copies that are available to be signed out. I think it's about 14 bucks to buy it. I would, uh, you might want to add it to your library. It's definitely the kind of book you might want to even leave on your coffee table and, and read a little bit here and a little bit there. It's not the kind of book that you have to read cover to cover because what he does is he takes, oh somewhere over 10,000 written historical accounts uh, from various Christians, books, letters, writings throughout the centuries that basically say that we have uh, healings, raisings from the dead, casting out of demons, speaking in tongues, prophesying, that we have these things going on in, uh, in our midst. And what's, uh, there are kind of... An old theory of cessationism was that the gifts of the Spirit stop with the apostles. That's no longer defendable at all. Never was, it really never was, unless you... What kind of happened with the rise of the split between modernism and evangelicalism is the, uh, the fundamentalist evangelicals kind of took an anti-history, uh, an anti-intellectual point of view. So if you don't know any history... Maybe you could say the gifts of the Spirit start stop with the apostles, but the problem is, is that none of the Christians of the second, third, fourth, or fifth century think that that happened. <laughs> so, that whose writings we still have, and uh, hundreds of times they they testify to the fact that we have these kinds of things going on in our midst. So, there's now kind of a new cessationist theory that maybe they stopped once the canon was recognized uh, late in the fourth century, and. Uh, some of you have been through our church history class or have studied on your own the development of the canon and, and how the 27 books that I think were all written by 70 AD, but I'm very conservative, uh, how they were eventually uh, recognized by all the churches as the authoritative word of God. And uh, that whole process is definitely worth studying. Uh, and in, when I did the Tuesday night thing, I left uh, a whole page of quotes from Augustine because Augustine is just after that process is finished. And he testifies, and Augustine's quite interesting for a number of reasons, because one, he's probably the last uh, of the apostolic fathers, he's the last one that Eastern Orthodox, Roman Catholic, and Protestants all say, read Augustine, he's our guy, <laughs> you know, he, he's on our side. And uh, a lot of ways, the Reformation was the triumph of Augustine's soteriology or doctrines of salvation over his doctrines of ecclesiology or the church. But both Catholics, Protestants, and even Eastern Orthodox would say, St. Augustine, you got to read him. And so another interesting thing about Augustine is he started as a cessationist. The idea of, a, of, of cessationism uh, goes all the way back to the time of Jeremiah, as we'll see this Tuesday night and next Tuesday night. And uh, um, 
Augustine started his Christian life not believing that the miraculous gifts of the Holy Spirit were still in operation in the church, completely changed his mind, and documents hundreds of miracles in uh, a little, some, some in his confessions, but mostly in the City of God, uh, which is one of his three most important books. The third one being the tr- on the Trinity. So, um, so anyway, we looked at, uh, and then we went through like Bernard of Clairvaux and lots of different people from different ages. George Fox, the founder of the Quakers, one of the two founders of the Quakers, who uh, and the Quakers, to me, are important because they're the, they are the founders of the modern abolitionist movement, which, in my opinion, is still a battle still going on. And uh, so, uh, but they had healings and lame people walking and things like that in their midst. So, anyway, that was Tuesday night. If you want to feel for that, get this book, and it's the kind of thing I've been told by Amber Johnson. I think it was Amber that told me there's more that you can read for free on Google Reads than you can read for free on Amazon. Um, I have trouble figuring out how to use Google Reads, I'm, so I, but I read all kind of books. I read all you can, you're allowed to read for free on Amazon because they always have that free look inside. So you can, a lot of times, you know, they give you enough to kind of say, good, now I don't really need to read the book. I think I got this. <laughs> but... Uh, um, in this particular book, they give you so much that you can bounce around and look at different time periods. And all I want you to do is understand that, uh, similar to C.S. Lewis's Lord, Liar, Lunatic argument, in either uh, all these Christians throughout the century are liars, but the problem is, is like if you read uh, uh, Celebration of Discipline by Richard Foster, a very good book, I recommend it. Uh, a well-known evangelical pastor, very respected. He has a, uh, another book that I love a lot called Devotional Classics. And he's basically saying, you should read Bernard of Clairvaux. And he has lots of stuff in his Devotional Classics from Bernard of Clairvaux. But Bernard of Clairvaux was known for 30 to 35 miracles a day when he was preaching. That included blind people healed, lame walking, and so forth, casting many casting demons cast out, and all this, and you can't separate. You can't like have it both ways. Either Bernard of Clairvaux is a good Christian, or he's deceiving us all, or he's crazy. And all these Christians that people say their writings are so good, you should we should all read them and we should understand them, and and so forth, are noted for the miraculous activities that the Holy Spirit did through them. So that was uh, Tuesday night. Tonight, uh, tonight, today, uh, I'm going to turn back the clock to eight, 8 o'clock. Forget what time it is. No. Um, oh, la- one last thing at the bottom of the page. You might say, well, what happened to elements 7i and 7j? I just, so I'm, I'm actually presenting these out of order for, uh, from how they'll be written in a book and, and so forth because uh, 7i is going to be on the three uh, perspectives concerning the Holy Spirit today, whereas uh, 7H is going to be a refutation. I'm going to refute the arguments for both cessationism and what I, I would call the third wave today, and some others call it that too. I'm going to refute both positions from Scripture on, 
That'll be a week from this Tuesday. So today we're uh, jumping ahead in the series, two, two notches, two, uh, two chapters, to the necessity of rediscovering and restoring biblical patterns. Then all I'm trying to do today is lay the groundwork for why next Sunday we're going to look at the pattern of how the Holy Spirit came into Jesus' life and, and so forth. And we're going to see that Jesus was born of the Holy Spirit, had a greater encounter with the Holy Spirit at John's baptism, and more than that to come. Um, so um, then the next week we're going to look at um, five examples of people coming to Christ two Sundays from now, five examples of people coming to Christ in the New Testament, and that'll probably take two Sundays uh, to go through five examples, and we're going to look at five specific things that happened with regard to the, their encounters with the Holy Spirit at conversion, and, and, and shortly after conversion, and so forth. So we're going we're gonna to kind of look at the book of Acts as a pattern. All right? Hopefully it's clear about where we're going. So uh, if, if you're on the back page by now, Roman numeral 7, um, a lot of the stuff I'm sharing today is a review and expansion on material that's found in three other places, which I've listed there for you in case you're interested in this subject. Because this is probably definitely in the top ten, probably the top five most important uh, concepts for what we're trying to do here at Grace Christian Fellowship. We're trying to do a rethink, a reexamination, a rediscovery through much study, through practice, through uh, re, you know, reading various authors, et cetera, et cetera. We're trying to kind of uh, refine biblical patterns. And we're trying to build a community whereby we can restore those as a way of life. So uh, those were covered, again, in that Restoration and Rediscovering and Restoring Biblical Christianity series. The Right State version covered it best um, over the Cedarville versus St opponents versions. Uh, secondly, the Eight Essential Elements series, this particular series, when I was doing the review and preview, we previewed these in, in uh, Element 7A. I'm hoping to get into them a little bit more, but I can spend too much time with the review, uh, which I always do. Uh, and then uh, some of this material is from the Catechism mini-series, which is three parts. John did the first part, which is an explanation of why we use Tim Keller's New City Catechism for, for our kids' ministries, for the, the readers, and, and, uh, which is taken from uh, both Westminster Confession and the Heidelberg Catechisms. And it's kind of a reshuffling those together and modernizing the English. And, and uh, so uh, if you're not familiar with why we do that, you might want to re-listen to John's chapter one of that series. Then chapter two, I'm going to take some material uh, from that by the end today, if I can. All right, so let's let's get into uh, spent almost a half an hour reviewing. So now I got twenty minutes to do the actual message. Uh oh, all right. Well, that's why we have me at nine thirty. So I have to have I have to stop. Otherwise, I'd still be here preaching at three o'clock. Um, so. The first thing I want to talk about is kind of restoring dominion perspective. You know, there's a lot of ways of looking at uh, the, what we taught on the entire Tuesday night series this past semester at Wright State was kind of a looking at what was called the modernist versus uh, 
fundamentalist um, controversy, and uh, I keep forgetting Spurgeon. What does Spurgeon call it again? The somebody should know this by now. Downgrade controversy. Thank you. Who threw that out there, John? Thank you. Uh, but the modernists, when they when they began to apply evolution in an anti-supernatural worldview. Uh, kind of captured much of the Roman Catholic clergy and uh, much of the Protestant churches. And and what you would call mainstream Protestantism, for the most part, followed the modernist ideas. Fundamentalism was kind of a way of fighting back against that, but instead of kind of going at it the way Christ and the apostles had met some of the same challenges, uh, especially in the first few centuries, it was kind of a whole new modern way of looking at Scripture. And uh, in the name of not being modern. And uh, so um, we looked at pietism and dispensationalism and antinomianism and all of that stuff may or may not have meaning to you. It Eventually you definitely want it to have some meaning to you because uh, it's important. But in the, the bottom line of how to sum that all up is it reduced the content of Christianity and the, and the message you're getting from your Bible. The gospel itself was reduced. The, the doctrines of the church were reduced. Um, what Christianity applies to, especially when it came to re, uh, Neoplatonism or dualism or Neonasticism, where our Christian life is about what we do in our spiritual life, but it's not about our vocation or how we raise our kids or any of that. Um, it's not about practical day-by-day nuts and bolts things. And all this reductionist Christianity... Um, that kind of unfolded, uh, you know, dates to, in some cases, to the 18th century, mostly to the 19th century. But in a lot of ways, um, if you kind of really study some of the evangelists of the 1830s and so forth, there was an attempt to reduce the gospel, to minimize the offenses of the gospel, so that we could get bigger numbers, and that idea grew from 1830s till it kind of reached its climax in the 1970s with what became known as the church growth movement. And the church growth movement gave birth to the 1980s mega churches. And it was a kind of like, let's reduce everything we can reduce to get more people. And um, because the gospel has built in lots of offenses built into it. Your, your flesh and your sin nature do not, does not like the gospel. <laughs> you weren't seeking Jesus. He was seeking you. All right, so part of all, that, part of all that process became kind of an escapist run from reality. Let's protect our kids from immorality. Let's, you know, let's circle the wagons. Let's uh, be afraid of the world and... and its influences, and all that kind of stuff. And that is manifest particularly in the eschatology that was developed called, that's, uh, called dispensational premillennialism and so forth. We're obviously not going to look at all that today, but I, what, what in fact is the result of that is that we went from, uh, at one time, uh, early America was one of the most Christianized cultures in the history of the world, um, and we today are one of the most secularized cultures in the history of the world. And uh, how, how did all that happen? 
that happened by the church being a reduced message. We want to get all mad that the media is pressing the boundaries of immorality on TV and all this kind of stuff. But the Bible doesn't approach it that way. Jesus says that we're supposed to be the salt of the earth. And so when the, when the culture is getting more corrupt, that's on us for not being salty enough. We're not, and, and that doesn't mean we should be bashing them over the head or preaching legalism or whatever. It, it has to do with our whole conception of how we live in the church and, and how we do everything that we do. So the New Testament church turned the world upside down. They were accused of that. And that was in, within less than a generation of, of Pentecost, you know, of the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, the outpouring of the Spirit, all of that. Within a generation, they were accused in, in uh, uh, Macedonia, far, you know, quite a bit away from Jerusalem, of turning the whole world upside down. And in many cases, they deserved the accusation. They were because they were proclaiming there's another king, not Kaiser, not Caesar, but Christ. And that's what brought the Roman persecutions that mostly started with Nero. If you, if you look at the persecutions, they were mostly from the Jews that had rejected Christ right after Pentecost and up through uh, 70 AD and, and on, on, a little bit after that. Uh, but... Um, Starting about 64 AD, they became increasingly from the Roman Empire itself. Watched one of my favorite old movies this week called The Robe, which is a fictional movie against the backdrop of those events. Um, so, the New Testament church, Jesus tells us we're supposed to be salt, we're supposed to be light. I don't know about you, but when I'm in a really, really, really dark place that I've not been before... I'm always trying to find, is there a light? <laughs> you know, these days, of course, everyone has one on their phone, you know. And uh, you don't have to go looking for a light switch or a pack of matches or anything. But uh, uh, the theme of city and all that, you know, the city is uh, a major theme of the whole Bible. The, you know, the Garden of Eden, the, the whole theme of, of garden, desert, wilderness, you know, so forth gives way to the whole theme of city and kingdom and, and all that through the Bible. But by and large, we're supposed to be a city within the city. And uh, we're supposed to be, be the answers, not just have the answers. Right? So I have a little statement here. The plan of Jesus has not been tried and found wanting. It's not been tried. Now, I'm not saying it's never been tried historically, but I do want to say that uh, kind of what we're doing in Christian community is fairly rare today. You know, the whole megachurch thing tends to be programmatic and impersonal. And it's certainly one of the things I always do when uh, someone's first tracking with our church, sometime in my first, second, or third meeting with them, I always ask them, how many times has a qualified pastor qualified in a biblical sense and ordained and other people or, you know, the association or, uh, that he's in or whatever, had, recognizing him, sat down with you and invested in your life and spent time with you like this, and almost everyone says never. And the only time we don't do that when people come to our church right away is when we feel like this person probably just needs a little bit more room for a while and we'll just love on them and so forth. But we have available people qualified 
to to guide you, to teach you, to lay your foundations, and we will invest hours and hours in you. And that is available to everyone. And on, for the most part, the only groups that disciple like that anymore today are parachurch ministries that target high school and college groups. Now, I think high school and college age people should be the main target of the church because that's the Bible's always about the seed. It's always about the next generation. It's always, you know, what you're supposed to do as a father and mother is always about what you're investing in your children and your grandchildren. And um, so all that's great, but churches ought to be doing that. And what kind of discipleship goes on today is mostly informational. In other words, we're going to take you through this seven principles booklet, and then we have our, for the deeper life, we have our five principles booklet or whatever. And, uh, you know, we're going to try to get you through our two or three little booklets and give you a certain amount of information that you need to get started in the Christian life. But biblical discipleship is informational. It's formational. In other words, it helps you build Christ-like character. And, uh, and it's impartational, uh, as we're going to look at later when Paul tells Timothy, he says, now you followed my teaching conduct purpose. He's telling Timothy, you, we spent so much time together. He calls Timothy his son at the beginning of both First and Second Timothy. And, you know, Timothy had a dad, but Paul had adopted Timothy in his heart. And it was more than spiritual fatherhood. It was life <laughs> together. And Paul uh, says, you followed, you know, not only my teachings and all this, but you followed my purpose. Now, when you really start to tap into the purpose of, you know, what I, I had the privilege of being discipled by four or five different pastors over my 43 years, and I have made it very, a very important priority to understand what their motivation is, what their vision is, what makes them tick, and to ask God to motivate me accordingly. So that is the, you know, what Jesus is saying in Matthew 28 when he ends by saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. Go and make disciples in all nations, teaching them to observe. Do what I did to you. And that, and they, first and foremost, Mark 3.14 says that Jesus appointed the 12 that they might be with him. You know, sometimes you need to stop before you finish the rest of the sentence because we, we all know that it goes on to say, and that he might send them out to preach. But the first thing he appointed them to do was hang out with him. Let's go out and get pizza. <laughs> Let's go to Old Hickory and get a barbecue. You know. <laughs> That was like, Stephen and I went to Old Hickory every week for like, I don't know, like six months when he first started coming. Um, that, there's some Old Hickory right there. Um, it's evidence. So, um, this last point here about noble-mindedness, I'm definitely not going to get to the message much today. Um, and again, because, you know, we are, to some people this is new too, and others it's not. Um, I should have probably hit this Gates of Hades thing, too, and I'll probably just have to spend two weeks on this, which means it's going to be chapter 9A and B. Sorry, Emily. But uh, Acts 17, uh, 11 and 12, the, 
uh, it says the Bereans were more noble-minded than the Thessalonians because they searched the scriptures to see if these things were so. Please memorize that verse. Please make it a life verse. Please take it to heart. Please make it a way of life that I don't know as much as I think I know, and therefore I'm going to approach every day like starting over studying and seeking and crying out to God, instruct me, teach me your ways, like the psalmist. I, I am hoping someday to actually write a book on unstated doctrines of American, modern American Christianity, things we would never say we to teach and believe, but we in fact do. And one of them is what I would call the comfortable doctrine. You know, like we even end up, you know, after we pray with someone, we say, find a church that you're comfortable with. And I'm like, where would you get some crazy idea like that? You know, as far as I know, crowns of thorn are not that uncomfortable. Or not that comfortable, I mean. <laughs> uh, misspoke. Try one on, let me know. Uh, you know, floggings, getting spit upon, getting accused of this and that. I know that territory a little. But, uh, <laughs> you know, uh, where, where would we think that, like, unless you take up your cross and follows me, you cannot be my disciple, has anything to do with, like, being, finding a place to be comfortable? But that really is a very major idea. And, oh, I went there because, boy, nothing offended me. There wasn't anything challenging. And they had the best donuts and coffee and very friendly people. And, and everything was measured so that no one could be upset about anything. I hope I make you upset sometimes. I hope when you read your Bible. <laughs> yeah, I, this is the first thing I ever got any amens on. <laughs> <laughs> that's funny um, and then the uh, I was not brought up that way I mean oh my gosh that is like become like a major tenet of the faith like well I you know I can only believe what the other Christians I've seen have believed and do <laughs> really all right well, um, let's go do the gates of hating thing, and then next week we'll just use the same outline and go to uh, point B, rediscovering and restoring the pattern, because I really want to develop that a little bit more detailed than we normally have done. Uh, for some of you, there actually is going to be a few new things in there, who, even those of you who've heard that same message four or five times. Um, so let's go back and just spend the last couple minutes doing the gates of Hades, and we'll, we'll start at point B next week on uh, Roman numeral 7. The gates of Hades, is there's a whole uh, series of podcasts that was done just before. We started this series. This is like the 94th message. So we started this series in 2015. Just before that, um, I did some... Uh, messages in particular to response uh, because Amber Johnson who had started coming to our fellowship at Wright State had said something that lots of people say to us like 50 or so uh, gee I've never read the Old Testament much nor have I ever been equipped to read the Old Testament much 
And as you know, it's kind of a major goal of John's and my own and myself to teach you how to find Christ in the Old Testament. Uh, you know, I have a saying, the apostolic hermeneutic is correct, and it's Christocentric, which is to say what the apostles did over and over and over again was they gave us examples in the New Testament as a starting point, not exhaustive. There's actually an evangelical idea that in, unless the, uh, the New Testament gives us a specific application of applying Christ to the Old Testament, we can't use those same principles to do it, keep doing it which is precisely wrong. Uh, the same way the apostles found Christ in the Old Testament is really principles and suggestive of how we're to find Christ all through the Old Testament. And they gave us, I don't know, two or three or four percent of the possibilities. So, as, and they gave us great frameworks and guidelines for how to go about doing that. And so, I did like uh, three weeks on what, I, uh, what was called, on mountains and the use of mountains throughout the Bible, and two of the weeks was called Mountains in Matthew, and we specifically looked at several, it, the fact that almost every important dialogue of Christ in, in the Gospel of Matthew happens on a mountain, and each of the mountains is very symbolic, and when he, in Matthew 16, uh, which is usually where I start if I'm like if I if I can get like a Hindu guy to agree to having a Bible study or you know when we're on campus working with someone from uh, another world faith I start with the question who do people say Jesus is followed by who do you say Jesus is because Christianity falls or rises on that and when Jesus takes the disciples to the to uh, the gates of Hades to the mountain where Herod's uh, palace is built, it's the only time he takes them outside of the borders of Israel. So it can't just be coincidental. <laughs> it's, in, it's intentional. And uh, he takes them to the base of the mount where, where the worship of Pan went on. And Pan is, uh, uh, is the, Latin, or the Greek name. And uh, the Latin name is Fawn. You know the character Fawn in uh, C.S. Lewis's uh, Chronicles of Narnia. That's half goat and half man. That was what a fawn or pan is. And he was a, a Greek god in Greek mythology. And they would sacrifice and worship to Pan at the gates of Hades. And they would actually have rituals where they would have sex with goats. It's pretty disgusting, as most paganism usually is. Paganism is for adult audiences only. And I always say, I always go, I'm not old enough to, to read about this. And uh, so uh, when Jesus is doing this, and then he, on the revelation of thou art the Christ, the, the son of the living God, he then says uh, that upon that rock I'll build my church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. He's actually standing at the gates of Hades. And he's using it to, to say, I'm going to build my church, which is in contradistinction to Moses' church. 
boy, I'm way past time, so I'm going to have to finish this, unfortunately. You can listen to the full sermon on it if you want. Um, because Israel, Deuteronomy 28 and 29, and many other passages predict why Israel will be judged and why they will be dispersed among the nations and so forth. And that culminates with Jesus in Matthew 23 uh, and Matthew 24 and so forth. We developed all that in, in that message. But um, Jesus is saying, I'm going to build a different kind of called out assembly, community, nation, city of people. And one of the differences is that Israel was supposed to mediate the law of God and the presence of God and the ways of God and the historical word of God to the nations around them in a redemptive mission. And Israel always hated the Gentiles around them and the Samaritans because they were only half, they weren't as pure biologically as us and, and all that kind of stuff. It was, and, and the church falls into that. We fall into like, you're not of our denomination or our little holy club or us four and no more. And, and we, the church has a tendency to get turned inward. And Jesus is saying, we are, you know, and, and actually we kind of ra raise one another, like stay away from those bad people. And Jesus is saying, I'm going to equip you, not by yourself, I'm going to equip you as a community of people, as a city, to go get the bad people. Go let them, liberate them. Go set them free. And our mission is always going to be, we only come here to get equipped to go out there and do what we're supposed to do, which is supposed to be gates are for defense. And Jesus is saying the, that hell won't be able to hold out against the onslaught of the army of God as we continue to liberate one prisoner after another until we liberate whole cities whole cultures, and whole nations. So that is the pattern Jesus is trying to put into his disciples when he builds them into a community in the New Testament. And we will pick that idea back up next week when we look at uh, rediscovering and restoring the pattern in a little more detail, starting about halfway down the outline with hopefully less review. Amen.